Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today on LGBTQ&A, I'm talking to Ryan Berg. Ryan works with homeless youth who are LGBTQ. He also wrote a book about them called No House to Call My Home, and I really appreciate that he doesn't try to hold back or sugarcoat the very real problems that exist in the foster system. He describes it as sometimes seeming like just a prep course for incarceration, and talks about how a return to homelessness is a very real possibility for when people age out of the system. So we discuss all these things, as well as some changes that are being made, some new things that Ryan's trying, but before we get to it, if you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe. You can do that on any podcast app or platform. And if you'd be so kind, please rank us five stars and leave a comment on iTunes. It is a huge way for new people to find our show, and I really appreciate it. And don't forget to check out our old home at AfterBuzz TV. They're the number one place for all your TV after show discussions. All right, without further ado, here's Ryan. Looking at the stats in your book, mm-hmm. the one that stuck out to me the most that I hadn't heard before was that children placed in foster care are more likely than veterans of war mm-hmm. to develop PTSD. Yeah, it's it was striking to me as well. But, you know, doing the work, it not necessarily surprising. Foster care is really designed to look at the welfare of children, but it's a system that is poorly designed and, and way outdated. And I think uh, it's a one-size-fits-all kind of model uh, in addressing the needs of young people. Yeah. You describe foster care in your book as a band-aid. Yeah. Not a solution to the problem. Right. You wrote that the challenges you witness them confronting would send most adults into mental collapse. Yeah. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah. There's been historically this focus on on trauma and kind of a deficit lens on how we address young people who have been abandoned, abused, or neglected based of based off of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And I think the one thing that we um, neglected to kind of focus on until recently is their resilience. A lot of these young people, despite the harrowing past they've they've had, they have this drive to really have a better life and are really smart about making that happen for themselves. So yeah, I think the focus on on resiliency is as adults, we often we often miss. Uh, a lot of these young people are savvy and able to build up their survival skills and coping mechanisms in a way that uh, a lot of adults probably couldn't. Yeah, I'm really interested in the science or I guess new science of post-traumatic resilience. Yeah. And how the majority of people, once they get through these challenges, they they thrive, right? which is kind of wild. It is wild. But in tandem with that, there's also new neuroscience coming out around the links between trauma and chronic illness. So if, if we aren't finding ways to mend ourselves and heal ourselves, um, that there is still that kind of, that trauma lives in our bodies. It's not just like a... We're, we're in that trauma momentarily and then pluck ourselves out and it all goes away, right? We have yeah. to do that self-care piece to work through that. Because once these kids achieve some sort of stability or exit foster care, their problems don't just go away. Exactly. And we see that in the statistics, right? There's a lot of statistics around, well, I mean, the numbers of young people with mental health diagnoses, with chronic illness diagnoses, with suicidal ideation, all of those numbers, are they really peak with young people who have come through the foster care system. Also, the numbers of you know young people who are able to maintain a job, finish school, are yeah. quite low, right? And, and everything we're talking about, it's I think it's really interesting that for the job that you had as a caseworker in the foster care home, you did not need anything higher than a high school level mm, education. Yeah. <laughs> that's a little troubling. Um, I feel like that's really shady when I say that to you, right. but I think you know what I mean. No, I totally know what you mean. And that was, I think, a big surprise when I was going into the work that... I was really shocked that the position I had, which was initially a residential counselor, which means I was the de facto 
parental figure in this, these young people's lives. It's a sorely under-resourced position and underutilized position. I think that there could be so much healing and connection and growth in relationship, and it's just underutilized. What skills did you need to develop when you were in that role to be effective? I think part of it is kind of fairly innate. It's about building humility, being open, um, recognizing you don't have the answers. I think for for me, a lot of it was as a white man coming from who grew up in the Midwest, it was recognizing my power and privilege and often being checked on that by the, both the staff of color and the youth of color, recognizing that just because I was gay uh, and these young people were queer too, that we'd have so much in common, right? There was There's the class and race stuff, the intersectional identity stuff that um, I hadn't really worked on up to that point, and I, I needed to be open to understanding what, uh, how that affected the work I was doing and um, how to navigate that with young people. You highlight a couple of different stories in your book of different mm-hmm. kids you worked with. And coming from my perspective, which is biased as well, mm-hmm. I was surprised by how often AIDS came up. Mm-hmm. These kids' lives are, and their parents' lives are greatly affected by it, mm. and that shouldn't come as a surprise, and yet it did. Right. It came to it came as a surprise to me, too. I think the narrative, right, the mainstream narrative now is that the AIDS epidemic is over, but who is it over for, right? Who has access to the medications, the medical support? A lot of the parents were struggling with issues around HIV AIDS, and then some a lot of the young people, too. So I think... Having that caring, consistent adult in, in a young person's life, and I'll return to that throughout this interview, is essential. And I think that missing piece, you know, I think really affects uh, the way young people navigate risk uh, throughout their life, right? We're talking about like support systems. Right. Another thing they didn't have was the ability to rely on police and or teachers. Right. Yeah, um, teachers for sure. Um, that was a, a huge uh learning experience for me was checking in with teachers and recognizing that, yeah, in their eyes, this young person is in the system and therefore they're, they're hopeless. Um, they're not going to move forward. Yeah. That, that, that word hopeless is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And it's coming from a, yeah, when it comes from a teacher, right. When it's from someone who's supposed to be in a place to to help shape this young person and, and move them forward. That was a huge challenge. And then also, yeah, I think the interactions with law enforcement, oftentimes I would walk into um, public spaces with these young people and sometimes we'd maybe walk in staggered. So I'd come in a little after they would come in and I could witness how um, store clerks, police officers, um, folks in power were relating to these young people and then how that would shift and change when they would recognize that I was when at, that I was there with them as a white man. Store clerks oftentimes would... Um, almost instantaneously want to kick a young person out. Um, you know, so I'm working with queer youth of color, um, gender nonconforming young people. They go into a 99 cent store. They want to purchase something and the clerk wants to kick them out. I walk in afterward, make it really clear that I'm with this young person. And then that shift in behavior that oh, they're, all of a sudden they're willing to, to accommodate our needs. Right? And not only do they want to kick this person out, but they're actively trying to kick them out, right? Correct. They're acting on that. Correct. Yeah, oftentimes there was no shame in um, their bias and prejudice. Yeah, and then there's character. It's a friend of yours who says, like, don't you think if these kids just applied themselves that they could be successful like everyone else? And I wanted to bring it up because I don't think that that is an unusual opinion to have right. about these kids. Right. No, I think there's this. You know, there's, that's the American dream, right? You pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you just try hard enough. Yeah. Um, things will work out Opportunities for are open to everybody. Right. And I think, you know, what was really clear to me doing this work was how systemic oppression really affects 
the outcomes for young people. So two young people could apply the same amount of effort and they're not going to have the same outcome. That w- that becomes very clear in this kind of work. There are systems in play that are there to benefit me as a white person, but youth of color, trans youth of color, gender nonconforming youth of color, it's, it's, it's not the same, right? There are more hurdles than there is access to these um, services. Yeah. Yep. And, and you write that sometimes it seems like foster care is just a prep course for incarceration. Yeah, it feels like that's really uh, that's a really strong words. Yeah, and and I think it's I think it's accurate, right? Yeah, because like the yeah. data backs it up. The data backs it up. I think it's not only uh, a pipeline into incarceration, but it is a pipeline into homelessness. There'll be youth of color who have the same kind of behavioral outcomes as white youth. White youth will be funneled into um, outpatient treatment programs. Youth of color are funneled into um, juvenile justice programs. These patterns are consistent within systems, right? And so oftentimes um, those young people that are within systems that are funneled into being incarcerated and or into homelessness. We talked about that I answer films of the Trevor Project Mm -hmm. on their suicide hotline. And something that really, um, something that I saw working there is that without these support systems that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. that when a bad thing happens, it's so easy for that to snowball and do nine other bad things. Whereas, you know, if I were to lose my apartment, I could stay with a friend for a bit, or I could move back home with my parents. And these barriers are always there holding me up. And that without those things, one bad thing can so quickly lead to homelessness. Yeah. One thing around queer and and trans youth homelessness, the, the, the common narrative oftentimes is that a family rejection, right? It's oftentimes that um, it's kind of the easier narrative to swallow, and it's the one that that um, queer and trans organizations tend to, to really focus on. And I think that that's limiting. It's part of the story, and it's a real part of the story, and it's it's a it's a painful part of the story. But it's about about fifty percent of of queer and trans youth that are experiencing homelessness have been kicked out of their homes due to family rejection. The other half, it's more complex, right? So there are these other intersecting issues, um, stressors that come up. So that could be generational poverty. It could be a parent that's incarcerated. Uh, it could be a parent that's deported. And I think it's a lot easier for folks to say, we love you, we care for you, we know that you were uh, kicked out from your, from your family, um, but you, we love you the way you are. That's a bit easier than it is to say uh, as a service provider. We know that your father's incarcerated. We know that your mother is dealing with substance use issues and we're here for you and we love you and we care for you. So there is in some ways that we've created this hierarchy of who deserves support and who doesn't. And I think it's incredibly important to kind of eradicate that really and focus in on all the intersections of identities. It's not just about family rejection, right? And it is, it's really kind of more nuanced and complex than that. Because when we talk about it more than family rejection, then we have to acknowledge the more painful parts of society, like over policing of people of color. Correct. And yeah, and, and it's a lot easier. And so most of these organizations, right, are white led. So it's talking about these intersectional identities that we often haven't had to. Um, we talk about them in, in terms of gender and sexual orientation, but how do we make that more complex and nuanced and how do we incorporate all of that, right? So we're talking about racial and economic justice in addition to justices for um, trans and, and queer folk. I guess too, in terms of like the PR message of the story, it's easier to say like, hey, we need to help these kids. Their parents don't love them versus right. we need to help these kids. We locked their parents up. Right. So we're complicit in that, right? Yeah. As a society. Yeah. And it's a much easier narrative to swallow just to say young people are, are being kicked out and yeah. they don't deserve to be kicked out. Well, the young person who's also been experiencing homelessness because they're the oldest kid of five and they're staying in a one-bedroom apartment and mom just doesn't have the resources or support to provide and that young person makes the choice, right? 
to leave in order to make things easier for mom and for the four siblings. That's not that's not an easy narrative, right? That's a little more complex. Uh, and then what's our role in that? How do we navigate that? I was also struck by in doing this work, it's almost like damage control every mm-hmm. day. There's mm-hmm. a, a big problem, big problem, big problem that you need to get through. And so it's really hard, I feel like, to zoom out mm-hmm. and say, what is, how do we fix this on the whole? Because there seems to be like a stasis mm-hmm. in terms of helping these kids. We're putting them in foster care mm-hmm. and they age out. Mm-hmm. And like, what needs to be done? Is that me being judgmental? Like what needs to be done to fix this for lack of a better word? In your opinion. It's a really large question. Um, Well, I mean, it's also who's, who is being removed from the home, right? And who, who has the opportunity to stay in the home is one. I think how we, how systems interact with folks who are are impoverished or folks of color is is one thing. I think, um, or what do we see that's working? Or, or like, I, mean, I guess mm. the, the basis of this question assumes that foster care is not working, but I guess it is. To works an for some, yeah. Well, and the thing is, yeah, it is for sure. It works for it works for some folks, and I think um, I have a biased opinion because the folks that I work with, it hasn't worked for them, right? Um, in fact, it's been quite the opposite, and they've. It, I've had young people tell me that um, the most traumatizing thing in their lives wasn't the abuse or neglect that they had to deal with within the home, but it was actually foster care. Some of the personal stories that I've heard around that have been absolutely horrific. And I think the trauma that has come from that, trauma from being ripped from your home and then going to a place where you assume that you're going to be cared for, but then you're abused, you're neglected, um, you're seen as other is incredibly traumatizing. So yeah, I, I, I wish I had an answer for, for the question. I think the work I do now in Minneapolis is called, uh, I run a, something called a host home program, which is a community-based response to youth homelessness, recognizing that the system can only do much, so much, and it's it's pretty much tapped out right now. Uh, and how can we as community members uh, do something about that? It's not an act of charity, it's an act of solidarity. And I think charity can create an us and them mentality, whereas solidarity really is about us and us. So it's calling on the queer community and saying, we have to do something about this issue in our own community. So in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. the, it's the queer community letting in these kids. Right. So it started, um, we've been doing this program for 20 years in Minneapolis, and it was really the queer community saying, shelters are not safe for young people uh, who are queer and trans-identified. Um, it's, these spaces are not culturally competent. Young people report discrimination, violence based off of who they are. How do we do something then as a community to support these young people? The queer community came together in 1997 and said, we're going to create this program and it's going to be outside the system. We're not taking any federal funding from them, from you know, the government, from local governments or, or federal government. Uh, that allows us then really to address the needs of the youth and the hosts in the moment. So folks open up their homes. We provide food and shelter. They provide food and shelter. We provide wraparound supports and services. It's really about building community and helping young people who feel disconnected and in, in, in coming into the fold of, of the community. And so since stability is such a big goal, is it the goal to have these kids live with these people for their entire youth? The idea is um, the average stays about a year. So there's no hard end date to this. It's really about communicating what the needs of the youth are, what the needs of the hosts are. So we may come up with an idea like, oh, let's do this for a year and see where we're at. If the year's kind of coming up and a young person still really wants to stay and the hosts are up for it, we have that, we kind of negotiate that that conversation with them and see how we can support 
all of them and making that work. So it's an organic kind of exit. It's not like this hard. So in foster care, right, it's, it's you age out of the system once you're 21. Um, so it's nothing like that. We work with young people up to the age of 24. Uh, we can't extend because we're outside the system. So if a young person is 24, let's say, and they're finishing their last semester of school, college, and they want to stay with a host, we'll have that conversation with that host and say, this is, this is their goal. Are you interested in and helping uh, with that. And, and, they, and then we can have a, a real conversation about that. So when kids are pulled out of a home uh, for any number of reasons, mm-hmm. aren't they legally, uh, I don't know the exact words, not ward of the state. Mm-hmm. They're legally well, they ward of the state. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when they're pulled out of a home and they're a, a ward of the state, mm-hmm. then the state is okay turning them over to like unlicensed homes? How does that work? So well, we work with 16 to 24-year-olds. So if they're a minor, we have something called a delegation of parental authority form filled out, and that allows the host to kind of help navigate systems like education and healthcare. We have to have a parent or a guardian sign that. Uh, and then um, over 18, it doesn't matter. And over 18, it doesn't matter. And so has, has it been successful so far? Yeah, well, we help people all over the country start their own host home program. So yeah, it's been incredibly successful. Let's see, we're about 80% of young people who move out of host home move into stable housing. So that's a, that's above average when it comes to shelter or transitional living programs. It's a really big number. Mm-hmm. In in the home that you worked at that you wrote about in the book, as a person who's built a connection with them, if they don't have stable housing after that, mm-hmm. how do you, obviously you can't invite everybody to come over right. and just like, quote unquote, like, you know, take them in. How, how do you do that personally? Um, it's, you know, being there for them, uh, while having those professional boundaries that are so important, being that support for them, it's being that person that they can turn to, right. When things get rough and problem solve with them, I'm not necessarily going to be able to provide them cash or a place to stay, but I can help them problem solve and figure out what resources are out there for them and, and figure out which ways I can help. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking like on a practical level, if someone has aged out and you know that they're going to be sleeping in the park tonight, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to go home and Mm -hmm. go to bed. Yeah, that is incredibly hard. And I think there there are moments where that does happen and a part of me just kind of has to be able to... to step away, yeah, and it's 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 kind of even gross to say that. Yeah, it feels gross to say that, but it's it's partially true, just for my own sanity and my own kind of sense of autonomy and well being, and to be able to continue to do this work, to continue to be able to do the work. Yeah, yeah. What, is burnout something that's discussed a lot? Yeah, so um, it's called compassion fatigue in in foster care and, and youth work, and um, burnout's huge. I think when you're underpaid, under resourced, and uh, you are overburdened with the amount of young people that you're working with, it's easy for burnout to take place and, and compassion fatigue to kind of start to grow. So um, I think within the work, we often talk about self-care and, and ways in which we can kind of foster our own joy and, and find ways to, to just kind of work within community and, and support each other in, in the work that we do. We, we, we're talking about these more negative aspects of foster care, uh, but on an upside of things, they are living in a community of queer and trans people, which is really unique mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. Do you see that they form relationships? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. These are lasting relationships. I still see young people, especially on social media who I've worked with, who are still very well connected. And it is, I mean, it's the, it's, it's the you know, family of choice. It's the family of necessity in some, in, in some instances. I, a lot of young people um, that I worked with, especially in New York, would talk about other young people they'd met at other shelters, other group homes, 
the ball scene, spaces where marginalized youth would congregate and find community and find support and create their own family. And it was really beautiful. It was beautiful to witness. And it's beautiful to continue to see. I mean, some of the people that I worked with in New York are in their 30s now and are still very well connected to each other and find ways to support each other and love each other. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing. Do a lot of, how many of them enter into this work of That's a great question. caseworkers and stuff? A lot of young people will talk about wanting to enter the work, um, saying that they want to give back to, to um, young people in the way that they had received some support. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a hard, hard, fast number on that one, but I think, you know, there's a great number of folks that will find a one way or another. I have to imagine how powerful it'd be to be in foster care and to know somebody who got out and is thriving. Yeah, it's huge. It's really huge. And I think um, a, lot of, a lot of young people look up to those folks and, and really admire them um, when, they, when they kind of come through. In your writing, you did not have a good answer for why you initially wanted to get into this work. Do you now, is, do you have a better answer now? Yeah, I mean, I think, so a lot of people ask me, like, why, why write the book? And I think that kind of ties into your question. Um, it's I couldn't shake the stories. Like once I got into the work, I was naive going in. I had no idea really what I was doing. But you're still in it now. But yeah, I took I took some time away to take care of myself, uh, and then returned to it. Yeah, and I think I couldn't shake the stories, and I and I realized that these voices were invisible. Right, these young people were invisible to 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 the status quo, and I fe- I feel like to evoke change in systems, we have to build empathy in order to invoke that change. And I feel like through stories, through the book, that's one way. And then another way is really through the community work that I do now, right? So outside of the system, really building community, going and speaking to folks, bearing witness to the magic of connection and how that really does evoke change. I think too, like when we talk about how big the number of homeless queer youth are, that number really hasn't changed for a while and it's most likely underreported. And I think that because it hasn't changed, there's not another story because it's not sensational, you know, when really it's outrageous how big it is. Right. The newest report is that queer and trans youth are 120% more likely to experience homelessness than their straight or cis counterparts. So um, that's mind-boggling to me. There's no national research around queer and trans youth homelessness. The numbers typically come from direct service workers And a lot of those drug service workers are making assumptions because when young people come into shelter, when young people come into transitional programs, they oftentimes won't self-identify as queer or trans for their own safety. So um, oftentimes they're just trying to survive, right, and get by. And one of the ways that they do that is to to have to kind of hide their identities in order to to receive services sometimes and sometimes just to, to make sure that they're not attacked while they're in these spaces. And because they're dealing with literally life-threatening issues, mm-hmm. <laughs> homelessness, shelter, everything, mm-hmm. um, it's harder to then abdicate for themselves and like to change the system and like right. legal measures. Right. Yeah. Unless they have, unless they find that advocate, there is that's that goes back to the resilience piece, right? Where so many young people will, because no one else will advocate for them, they find the strength to do so themselves, which I'm always just like blown away by. Like when you have nothing you have no resource and you become your own resource because you recognize that you have to this is the way you have to survive and that kind of blows my mind oftentimes but it's amazing when they really begin to thrive i work with so many young people in minneapolis and they're completely disconnected in every way and then you start to see this kind of transformation in the young person where they they start to see their own value right and that's a really beautiful thing where that you can see that shift where it's like i'm just not a number i'm not invisible wow someone actually does give a shit and 
that can be a really remarkable but subtle transformation. And that's our show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rank us five stars, and leave a comment. Leaving a comment specifically on iTunes is one of the biggest ways you can help new people find our show. If you want to recommend a guest, I love hearing from you each week. The best way to do that is on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. You can also sign up for our newsletter at LGBTQpodcast.com. It is a great way to stay up to date on all new episodes and live shows. We've got a couple coming up this summer, one on either coast. That's LGBTQpodcast.com. As always, special thanks to our partners at Panoply, our old home, AfterBuzz TV, the Elon University in Los Angeles studio, Jason McMurdy, and everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. 